Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Today we're joined by Jim Curry. He is a political science professor at the University of Utah, and we are about a week out, just over, uh, as we record this. Is it 10 for, days? It's, uh, well, right, it's uh, November 3rd. Today we're recording at the uh, last week of, um, of October, and I'm, I'm nervous, excited, uh, scared. What else can I say? I, I, I remember four years ago when I thought this was going to be... Exhausted? Could you add exhausted? I can, exa- mentally, totally uh, exhausted. Yeah. But I, I remember thinking four years ago that this was the craziest election I'd ever seen and that I was I, I could not believe that... I, it, it never occurred to me, it literally never occurred to me that we would be in a position we are in today. And I, today now, find myself thinking of that, the, the deja vu moment, and I am more worried now knowing what happened last time, even well, though, you know, define what happened, define where we are today. Okay, so where we are today is um, Donald Trump is the President of the United States, okay. and I will have to say that for the rest of my natural life, and years <laughs> gone on, and he is supposedly trailing the Democratic, quote-unquote, front-runner, in this mm-hmm. case, last time it was uh, Hillary and uh, Tim Kaine, I don't even know why, every time I think about that, that's it's, uh, mind-numbing too. But this yeah. time, it's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And despite the fact that polls and a lot of uh, information seems to indicate that uh, the incumbent president is trailing, and uh, this, this feels like this is where we were last time. So, Jim, mm-hmm. I yeah. would like to ask you, uh, can you we talk me off the ledge, Jim. please? Are you going to introduce him? Oh, I just did. Oh, did you? Yeah. I said. Okay. I I feel adequately introduced. Okay, good. Talk me off the ledge, please. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit why this time is different from 2016. And this is not to give you any sort of guarantee or give any sort of prediction. I'm not in the prediction business. Making guarantees in politics is generally a bad idea. But things are different in 2020 in terms of the environment and the polls than they were in 2016. So for one, in this week... Four years ago, Hillary Clinton led Donald Trump in national polls by two to three percentage points. Right now, if you look at the polls, Joe Biden leaves by eight to nine percentage points. So that's a sizable difference. But that's not the only thing that's different. Also, in 2016, at this point in time, 
we had about 13% of people responding to polls saying that they were undecided, that they weren't sure whether they were going to vote for Trump or uh, Hillary Clinton. This time, that percentage is about four to five percentage points of poll respondees. So right there, you get a big difference, right? Not only do you have Joe Biden with a substantially larger lead than Hillary Clinton had four years ago, you also have far fewer people sitting on the fence who might swing one way or the other and undermine that lead, say, if they all swung to Donald Trump, which to some degree is what the story of what happened in 2016, where a large share of those undecided voters who decided last minute went for Donald Trump and essentially erased Hillary Clinton's small polling lead, um, at least in a handful of states. You also have a very different political environment than you did four years ago, and maybe this is maybe this is good or bad, depending on how you think about things. But in 2016, you had a political environment that was much better for a Republican presidential candidate. You were coming off of eight years of Democratic Party control of the White House, which largely tends to rile up voters from the party that's been out of power for that time and kind of make voters who support the party in power a little bit more complacent. Now that's a little reversed, right? You have a Republican incumbent who's presiding over a worsening economy and a global pandemic, um, and a Democratic uh, set of voters who are very who don't like Donald Trump and are very excited to have a chance to try to vote him out. And the, the final thing that I want to point out that's different from four years ago is that while polling in battle, what we would consider, quote, battleground states is very similar from 2016 to 2020, we're talking about a very different set of states in 2020 that are the quote, battleground states. In 2016, it was basically those upper Midwest states that were decisive in Trump's victory. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, where Clinton held narrow leads in the polls um, and were very tight. This time around, Biden holds much substantially larger leads in those states. And the states that are really tight are states like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, and Georgia. Those are states that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily need to win to win the election if he maintains his sizable leads in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Um, in fact, you could Biden have probably has a better chance of winning Texas um, next week than Trump does of winning Pennsylvania. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, again, none of this means that Donald Trump couldn't win the election. It just means he's a much heavier underdog this time than he was four years ago. Um, so I have a, about a million questions. I'm glad <laughs> okay. we're going to do this for an hour. Um, but let me, let me talk first about... Um, there's been a ton of discussion in the last four years about electoral college, mm-hmm. um, and uh, whether whether or not that is uh, breathing its last gasps. What are your thoughts on that? Um, as we, it, it, does it does it depend or matter what happens in this election? It could make it could matter. Every election could matter in terms of how we respond to and our decisions of whether or not to keep or reform the electoral college. I don't think so. I don't think it's going anywhere. I, nothing would please me more than to see it go away. I, you're, you're hard-pressed to find a political scientist who will tell you that they think the Electoral College is a wonderful system. Cause Why it's, is that? Because it's largely, it's, it's this old system that was created for like relatively non-purposeful reasons that all it really serves to do at this point is skew the way votes are counted in a number of ways. Um, such that depending on where you live, your vote for president counts more or counts less. And it doesn't have any – if you go through the arguments of why you might keep it, most of the benefits that are argued 
for the Electoral College really aren't actually there. So oftentimes people who are in smaller states will argue that, well, it's good because otherwise the presidential candidates would ignore us entirely if we didn't have this system because they would just be campaigning in vote-heavy states. That's probably not true because if you had – a lot of those states largely already get ignored. If you're in Wyoming, do you have ever have presidential candidates coming and paying attention to Wyoming? But that's the state where voters' votes get amplified the most in the elect, under the Electoral College. But nobody pays attention to Wyoming because everyone knows who it's going to support. In a pure popular vote system, every single vote matters exactly the same regardless of where it came from. So if you could get pockets of voters anywhere, you might go to that place to try to get them. Um, I mean, that's just one example of how the logic of why it benefits certain people or others isn't necessarily clear. Um, but you're hard-pressed to get find a political scientist who would say that, yes, it's good that we have a political system that sort of skews people's votes in different ways and determines an outcome like that. It's much simpler just to have a vote. Um, real quickly, yeah. uh, and we got about, about a minute. What, then why, why, don't, uh, the, why isn't there this push th- uh, through uh, you know, Congress to change it, uh-huh. if, if what you say is true? Because it's only really harmed one party in modern history, right? The two times in modern political history that one candidate won the popular vote and lost the electoral college, it was a Democratic candidate winning the popular vote and losing the electoral college. So Democratic lawmakers and Democratic voters don't like the electoral college and they'd like to get rid of it. But Republican lawmakers and Republican voters have benefited from it because twice in the last 20 years it has installed a president from their party who lost the popular vote. It's actually true throughout American history. Even if you go back to the 19th century, it's the Democratic Party that's always sort of been bit by this system. Um, so you don't have bipartisan consensus on getting on changing it, which is what you would need because you'd have to amend the Constitution. Um, if now, why I say the election might, or why the current election or any future election could play a role in the eventual end of the Electoral College, is because what if all of a sudden it hurts the other party? Mm-hmm. Um, and now maybe both parties see some benefit in moving past this system that we created in the 1780s. This antiquated system. When we yeah. come back, I want to kind of uh, continue this uh, large-scale national debate and talk about uh, voter, voter turnout and some of the underhanded yet legal tricks that uh, some uh, the, the GOP is uh, undertaking to, uh, you know, hopefully skew things in their favor. Uh, we're joined today by Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah. You're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.
Welcome back. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we're speaking with Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah on the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. And uh, Jim, we want to try to uh, stay kind of on the national thing for right now a little bit. And I want to ask you, um, right now, we, we have early voting that's uh, started in a lot of states. And there's, there's been a larger turnout uh, almost than there was before, last uh, four years ago. So people mm-hmm. seem to be really engaged in the situation. But I, I've noticed that, for instance, Texas is kind of the, the uh, gleaming example uh, of what uh, Republican leadership is trying to do to make it, what seems to make uh, me to be pretty obvious, to make it difficult for uh, voters to, you know, vote by mail. Uh, they make, uh, make it so that in, in Texas's case, they have one uh, ballot box uh, for, that you can turn a in. Drop box. Mm-hmm. Drop box mm-hmm. per county. One per county. We have 59 in Salt Lake County. Yeah. Right? And, and uh, Texas, uh, uh, we're in Houston, their county, uh, Harris County, is the size of Vermont. So they have one. So it seems obvious. And, and unfortunately, legally, they've been able to do this because uh, it's gone through the courts and somehow they've sided with them. I, I find that odd. I wanted to get your, your idea on what, what does this look like for you? Yeah, I mean, this, to some degree, I mean, in these things, from my opinion, are generally horrible because from my perspective, for a good democracy, what you really want is to try to make it as easy as possible for as many people to vote as possible. Um, that voter you know, fraud is such a rare thing that, that the concern over that should not outweigh the concern about making it easy and feasible for as many people to vote as possible. That said, this isn't like a new thing, right, in American history. This mm-hmm. is the type of thing that's been going on in our country since, you know, the very beginning. Um, politicians in both parties throughout your history have always tried to find ways to um, make it harder for some people to vote, make it easier for other people to vote, in ways that hopefully benefit them. This is somewhat of a continuation of this, where, you know, you put fewer, you make it you know, on one hand, you could put more places for people to drop off ballots in places that are rich with voters who are likely to vote for the other party, or you could just not um, and make it slightly harder. Um, it's probably, you know, like you said, it's not illegal, um, but it certainly could have an impact. How much of an impact it could have is something we don't know. Um, but but these types of games Texas, have always been played. You've got to say to yourself that certainly it, uh, the, the, the rationale behind that is to make it harder for absolutely the people to vote. So we, we can kind of determine that it's going to potentially uh, and potentially potentially significantly uh, make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about vote by mail for these situations, Mm -hmm. those people could drop them in mailboxes and they can still get there. Um, So we don't know what the actual impact will look like in the long run, but you're right. This is done in order to make it harder for certain people to vote um, who are likely to support one party or the other, and it very likely could. We'll find out at some degree, um, sometime after the election, what kind of impact it had um, to the best that we can. It's always really hard to, really, really hard to know, but there's there's ways we can try to estimate it after the fact. And so it will it make it harder for some people to vote? Absolutely. How many people? We don't know. I, I also think that um, one sort of unintended consequence of, uh, I think in some places they've definitely tried to deter people from doing anything but showing up on November 3rd and voting. And so, um, but I think one unintended consequence is that is there are a lot of people who maybe were, hadn't participated much or they'd been sort of lukewarm about it and they're extremely motivated. Yeah. And um, and they've found an incredible amount of support. I mean, 
Um, that World Kitchen organization has been out feeding voters. I mean, people have been standing in line in the pouring rain. I mean, the conditions in which, that people are enduring to cast their votes early in person um, yeah. or to drop their ballot in a drop box is, yeah. to me, has been both sickening and inspiring. Yeah. Um, and that's I, and yeah, as you say, and that's part of the reason why we don't know what the actual impact will be. It's amazing to me, just you know, observing this informally in Utah, a place where we have and have had vote by mail for some time, right? Since twenty twelve, um, I think, yeah. Right, and so it's it's not new, and we know that the state is able to handle it because um, we have the infrastructure and we have the practice and we have the facilities. Um, and yet, even like friends that I have here have been very adamant about the day they got their ballots, they filled them out and put them back in. Mm-hmm. If that kind of messaging that we've had from, from folks about how to make sure your vote gets counted is, it has impacted people's mindsets in a place like Utah, where vote by mail is now routine, yeah. um, I, you have to imagine it's had that kind of impact elsewhere too, which could help like blunt the force of any of these attempts to make it harder for some people to vote. Um, so, go ahead. I was just going to say, the other thing I'm curious about is um, who's voting in the early voting? Um, do they have any idea how this breaks down? Because the reality is vote by mail is slightly helped the Democratic Party, more, like like it depends on the election, but yeah. it's been pretty even as far as who's voting, because a lot of rural voters I know mm-hmm. voted by mail, and that's definitely the case in Utah, and those are mostly Republican voters. Um, but, but now it seems like uh, the early voting is maybe going to throw a monkey wrench in this, and do we have mm-hmm. any clue on the demographics or the party affiliation of those voters? So really early on, so at a, na- at a national level, really early on, it, like the, early, the votes that were coming in by mail early on seemed to skew towards Democratic Party voters. And that's you know, based on like where those votes were coming from and who, it, who, the likely, who the likely people were. We also knew that in states where you had to request a mail vote or a mail ballot, that yeah. Democratic um, people who had who'd registered as Democrats were far more likely to request those ballots. But now we're seeing sort of, and so like those votes that came in early seemed like overwhelmingly to be come from Democratic Party voters. Um, but now some of these early in-person voting um, opportunities, as these have opened up in some states, we've seen those skew more towards Republican-leaning voters or voters who are registered Republican or voters in Repu- more Republican-type places. Um, so I think right now it's hard to tell what, you know, all this early in mail voting, like which demographics it's really benefiting more or less. We do know that historically, like, mail votes are more likely to be done by um, Democratic-leaning voters. But since it's going to be probably a third of the electorate voting by mail nationally this time, I don't know if that'll be quite as clear as it has been in the past. What's this going to do to uh, exit polls? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, exit polls were already kind of on their last legs. My apologies to anyone who's been involved in exit polls. I've been involved in them with them in the past too. I used to. I I mean, I used to really love them. I thought they were great barometer of what was going to happen, but. It's really been hard so far. Yeah, and it's early votes. Well, even last time, you know, t- like about what twenty percent of the mm-hmm. electorate, maybe thirty percent of the electorate, voted either by mail or early. That just completely skews the ability to pull off a, like exit poll on election day. Mm-hmm. You just need a different approach. And this year, it's just going to be even worse. Where maybe as much as half of the electorate will vote before election day. Um, it's and it's not a random half. You know, it's a systematic half. And so that's. My, I feel for people who have been doing exit polls for a long time because it's becoming harder and harder to make them work in an accurate manner. 
So when we come back, I want to uh, jump in on something. You know, uh, since exit polls don't work, and I, I feel as though we, we, we have these, all these things that could, we don't know when we're going to find out, uh, potentially, uh, it could be days before we find out who actually wins, depending upon how large the um, turnout and how the, the margins here. I want to ask you a little bit about that when we come back. So we're speaking today with Jim Curry, political science professor at the U of U. And we're talking about a presidential election. And also, at some point, I want to talk a little bit about some, something close to home, uh, the Utah gubernatorial election. I know that's not totally where he goes into, but I'd still like to get some comments from you on that, Jim. Uh, you're listening to Voices of Reason. back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah. And uh, in our last segment, we talked kind of about uh, voter turnout. And I want to stick, stick with that just for a little bit. You know, you were talking about how exit polling is uh, essentially, it's eventually is going to kind of probably fade away because with early voting and, and different kinds of voting, we, we don't just, everybody just doesn't do it on one day. How long yeah. do you think Knowing this, and, and so many people, have, uh, millions have voted uh, early already, do you think uh, it'll be a few days before we find out uh, who actually won the election? Yeah, I think you're going to find out pretty early on election night if it's going to be a wait about finding out who is likely to have won and lost. Now, it's going to be a long time before we know the exact final total of the election, but we have some states with that close their polls relatively early on election night, at least for those of us who live out west, it seems early, um, where they count their vote ballots pretty fast um, and have procedures in place where they're counting early votes and mail votes kind of as they come in. So they'll be able to tabulate things pretty early. So Florida is the key example here. Um, if Florida goes decisively for one candidate or the other, that could give us a really good clue as to what's happening on election night. Because it's likely, unless Florida is really, really, really close, um, that it will get called on election night. Basically, what you need to watch for is if Joe Biden wins Florida, if Florida goes for Joe Biden on election night, he's more he's about 99% certain to have won the presidency because it's really hard for Donald Trump or any Republican to win the Electoral College without Florida. Now, if Florida doesn't get called, or if it gets called for Donald Trump, that now we're in a situation where it could be a long time before we find out the winner, because now we have to wait until we hear from a number of states like Pennsylvania and others that are going to take a longer time to count their votes because they're not supposed to really start counting mail ballots until after the polls close on election day. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that um, they can certify the votes up until yeah. election day. So when you're putting your, it's, it, it does do some good to get your ballot in early. Absolutely. Because um, they can certify those ballots and make sure they're legitimate, and then they count them. So yes, um, that's right. So don't. I had some people say, "Well, why am I, you know, driving to a drop-off box?" Because I know people in Utah who are driving to drop-off boxes uh, because yes. they don't trust the mail system this year. Which again, you talk about crazy messaging or right? They muddied the taking. waters to make people uh, reluctant. Yeah. yeah, or people are just. I I do think there's a the erosion of trust, uh, is somewhat in part because of the pandemic, is mm -hmm. so significant this year that I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we would believe from our political leaders at this point. It's it's really 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 stunning. I wondered, um, Jim, if you have any thoughts on 
sort of the study of um, these different demographics. And for a while, Donald Trump was really focused on, I have to win back the hearts of suburban white women because yeah. I was, you know, we were, everyone was saying that's why, um, why, how he rose to power was white women's votes. But because he hasn't really lost a ton of traction with men. But I do think it's significant that on the flip side, black men didn't really participate in 2016. Mm-hmm. And they're participating at much higher numbers now. Um, what do you make of all these de- demographic groups? I mean, you kind of clue in on the two groups that where if they're moving against Trump and if they're showing up, that's bad news for him and for the Republicans. I mean, there's such a focus on suburban voters in part mm-hmm. because this, this you know, the story of, of for the Republican Party is they have to win the suburbs to win the election because they pretty much have rural voters locked up. Democrats more or less have urban voters locked up. And so the suburbs become the place where a party can win or lose. Um, and Donald Trump's not been good for the Republican Party among female suburbanites. But I think you're right that we should not ignore the impact of changing turnout among especially African-American voters, because part of the story of 2016 is also that if Hillary Clinton had been able to get the same kind of turnout among African-American voters in urban cities like Detroit and Milwaukee that Barack Obama did, she probably would have won the Electoral College. Um, so if those voters are turning out again in the numbers and to the degree that they turned out or close to the degree that they turned out in 2008 and 2012, um, and they're still voting in such high levels for the Democratic nominee, that's also bad news for Donald Trump because that just makes it even harder for him to hang on to some of those upper Midwestern states that he relied on to win the election last time. So uh, what if I, I got a weird question here? You know, uh, and I think this is stupid, by the way. I've, an- I've answered this on a, uh, on a panel once before. So Bill Maher and, and other people, a few people like him, have kind of put out this idea that, you know, if, if Trump loses, A, he'll balk at the results because he's muddied the water saying it's rigged. You know, this, mm-hmm. this is his way of saying, when I lose, I really didn't lose because he's a, a narcissist, dishonest, horrible person. But um, what, what happens if he uh, does balk at this I mean, there's there's obviously systems in place to prevent anything from going on long term. But if if you know if the vote is certified, he has to just kind of accept it, whether he likes it or not. Yeah, unless he has other people who are willing to help him stay in office, he can't stay in office by himself. Um, I mean, the way I view this is that this is what the president does. He sort of sets things up so that he can absolve himself of blame. Mm-hmm. So I, I, And he did this in 2016 as well, if you recall. He refused to say whether he would accept the outcome um, after the 2016 election if he lost. And well, he won, so we never had to find out what he would do. Um, but re- other Republican office holders, including Republican leaders in Washington, have been clear that, if, that, they, are not, that they will accept the outcome of the election one way or the other. And that's who he would need, essentially, to overturn the results and stay in office, because he would need Congress to throw out the votes from the Electoral College and keep him in power. And one, you're likely to have a Democratic-led Congress when you you get to the point of them counting the ballots, which Mm -hmm. makes it hard for that to happen. But two, I cannot really imagine Republican officeholders going along with that, and they've already said that they wouldn't go along with that. So... I mean, at some level, what is he going to do? Is he going to refuse to leave the White House? I mean, he's still not 
even if he does, he's still not the president. Right. I mean, the president yeah. is the guy who's sworn in on the 21st of January. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, the, the biggest problem is let me, that. Let me, yeah. Let me offer you a scenario, though, that, that could uh, bypass Congress, and that is going to the Supreme Court, which we, get, we had yeah. in 2000, so, where the Supreme yes. Court basically said, stop counting those ballots. And so that's, that's a, for me, that's a different story entirely, that if we have an election that's where the result is so unclear and there's all sorts of legal issues with the counting of the votes under the unique circumstances with which we are having this election, yes, that could absolutely lead to some sort of crisis where you have to have the courts or the Congress decide the outcome. Um, but I don't think if that decision, whether it's made by voters, whether it's made by Congress, or whether it's made by the courts, if that decision is that Donald Trump has lost the election, I don't see how he hangs on to power. Now, if that decision is that he won the election, then well, then there you go. Um, and it's very possible that a number of states see legal challenges to their vote totals and to aspects of their vote counting in the courts after November 3rd. Um, but, it, you know, the degree to which that matter will really come down to how close the election is. If, if it's a really close election, that's going to matter a lot. Um, if it's not a close election, it's it's these things are going to play out and they're going to be important, but it probably won't play a big make a big difference in terms of who wins and loses. Well, I'm just hoping for a landslide. Uh, we, yeah. <laughs> when, we, when we come back, I want to ask, I know that, uh, I want to kind of jump to civility in, in, in how campaigns should be run, because uh, we have a good example of that here in Utah. And I realize um, it's, it's a small election, but I, I feel like just for a little while, I, I felt some sense of civility and normalcy, and I, I, I need to get back there. Otherwise, my, my head will literally, literally explode. And I don't want uh, Jim to have to be responsible for that. So uh, this is uh, the Voices of Reason. We, today we're joined by Jim Curry, political science professor at the U of U. We'll continue our discussion right after this. This is the Voices of Reason. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by a political science professor from the University of Utah, James Curry. And uh, I wanted to kind of weigh in a little bit on uh, this. So this most recent week, we have a gubernatorial election going on in Utah, uh, you know, kind of in the uh, background of uh, the, the larger scale for the um, presidential election. And the two candidates, the, the Democrat and the Republican, uh, the Republican Spencer Cox and the Democrat Chris Peterson, they put out essentially a PSA, you know, saying that they, uh, despite the fact that each of them wants to win and they, they want uh, to carry votes from the electorate, they want to do so in a fashion that is respectful and civil uh, and, and they're going to be a, a peaceful transfer of power if, if whatever happens, right? And uh, basically this is kind of uh, a knock at what's happening on the national level and, and in a lot of other places for that matter. Now, personally, I, I, I find that, you know, comforting in some way that people have some integrity in, 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 in the political realm because, uh, like I said, I'm from Chicago. I know what dirty politics looks like, and I know from both sides, Republican and Democrat, mostly Democrat, by the way, uh, back home. So to see these gentlemen behave like gentlemen and, 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 and say such, uh, you know, with their own voices, and, and they did a couple of actual uh, PSAs, and it, it made uh, world news. Uh, they were on BBC. Uh, they, they, the story was the Today kind of Show. They were a lot yeah. of things. Mm -hmm. So, to me, I find that refreshing 
And even though it, it doesn't happen everywhere, certainly, we know that's not mm -hmm. how, it, it does seem to say that this is what we could be rather than what we have devolved into. Amy? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to totally disagree with you. And I'm very interested in Jim's, uh, um, I guess, study of civility. I, I feel, I felt um, two things. One is four years ago, I would have loved that ad, right? I aspired to that type of politics. Today, when you're talking about kids who were separated from their families as a way to deter them from seeking asylum, which I'm going to add again for the thousandth time that that's legal um, in this country, um, and we can't five, find 545 parents at this point. Um, uh, when you're talking about the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade and the overturning of marriage equality decision, um, when you have people who are struggling and suffering, and you're talking about 40% of independent businesses may be going out of businesses because of the way our government's handled economic recovery in the age of, of the pandemic. Um, we have all these things that to me are life and death things. If you can't eat, if you can't you know, seek shelter, if you can't do the basic things, then the, this idea that I have to ask for this nicely, um, when you have a law enforcement officer who can put his knee on the neck of a black man of any man, of any woman, of any citizen in this country, and decide to end his life, eight minutes and 46 seconds, I can't be civil anymore. I feel desperate. I feel like um, whatever, you need to look at the meaning of what I'm saying and stop asking me to be nice about it. I just don't, I feel kind of like uh, James Baldwin said, we can have political differences, but, but when you, when your political theory takes my civil rights, rights right. yeah. then I can't I can't be your friend and talk about this anymore. I feel like I I mean we started this podcast to advocate for civil dialogue in politics and I feel I, I feel desperately close to giving up. And Jim, I'm curious your thoughts yeah. on that ad. Stop her from idea. giving up, Jim. I um, can't believe I, it. <laughs> literally I've I won't, asked you to say I won't put podcast. that on you, Jim. I won't put that that's, on you. But, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> but but I am interested in that idea. Um so I have a few thoughts here, and um, I don't know that I'm going to be like I'm not that I'm going to make you feel all better. Um, so on one hand, with respect to the Cox and Peterson gubernatorial race and civility, you know, it's e it's easy to be civil when the result is largely already known, right? Um, if this was a really tight election for the state governor's office, you wouldn't see that because then you'd be in a situation where each candidate knew that any move that they made could potentially make the difference between winning or losing, mm -hmm. which is largely what we see at the national level, right? We see that with the presidential races because in modern and recent American history, they've all been so close and you don't want to leave any stone unturned. Um, you see this in the fights over control of the House and the Senate because every two to four years, it seems as if control of those chambers can switch. And that breeds a certain level of intensity and incivility in electoral politics that is maybe unpleasant and, you know, in an ideal world we wouldn't have to see, but it's a consequence of the electoral competition at play. Um, and so, you know, Cox and Peterson can be civil because we all know who's going to win on November 3rd. Um, now, as to, I, as to civility generally, you know, I'm always of two minds with this, right? On one hand, civil government is really important in terms of building coalitions in policymaking and passing things that have legitimacy with vast majorities of the public, which is what you need for laws to be 
uh, believed in and adhered to by most of the public because there's not enough coercive power in the world for a government to coerce all of its citizens to go along with laws that they think are unjust. But at the same time, I mean, Amy makes really good points that, <laughs> like, when what you're fighting over are when you're fighting over things that you believe are immoral or against your rights, um, it's hard to be civil. And some, to some degree, being civil when you believe your rights are being trampled on mainly benefits the folks who are benefiting yeah. from that sort right, of who system. Who are doing the trampling, right? Right. And so, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a in an ideal world, there's some balance there where we have elected officials who can be civil with each other in the halls of a civil governmental office like a Congress. And, you know, and generally they're more civil with each other behind closed doors than they are in the open because they're not playing to the cameras behind closed doors. Um, but, y- you know, the, for, and that, for and the that's popular, a fact, yeah. That's a yeah. fact, Jack, that, Jim, that I will say has always baffled me. Yeah. I can go out to a press conference and run somebody down. It's pra- practice. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then you go into and you have lunch together once a yeah. week. Like, some right. of them, I, I mean, some of these people are friends behind closed doors, but sure, they understand the politics because, of the moment. It means they have to jab each other. But they also are in the same boat, right? Yeah. They're the ruling class. They have power. And so yeah. whether they beat each other up in the media or call each other names or any of that stuff happens in public, at the end of the day, they have health care. They, they are in yes. charge. They the, have, they have the many, some yes. the finger. They can get access to power where we can't. So many of them are fighting for the things you believe in. There are plenty of members of Congress who, for instance, with the 500-plus children who cannot be reunited with their parents, there are you know, a sizable number of members of Congress who are likewise outraged about it. Um, but but, but they, they could do something about it. Well, they, they, but they can't. Well, they can't do something about it by themselves. That's the key of a government of our yeah. governmental system. We have a governmental system that requires typically overwhelming supermajorities to actually push something through. So they are there, actually working on that and trying to advocate and try to get their colleagues to agree to some sort of policy that would change that. But if you know, they can't. Re- they can't force other lawmakers to agree with them if they don't. Um, and mm-hmm. they're they're stuck in a situation where they probably don't feel like being civil either, but realize that they need to be able to work with these people who are essentially their coworkers if they ever want any hope of passing a law that would change that situation. It's a really frustrating situation mm-hmm. for people who feel just like you do about a lot of these things that you mentioned, but now are in this place where they have to work with people who they s- seemingly don't agree with on anything that's of importance to them. No, and I'd ask Jason, do you want to see Joe Biden in a commercial with Donald Trump? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. My, my answer to that would be Donald Trump is the only person. If you'd asked me before about Mitt Romney, about uh, John McCain, yeah. and the previous ca- candidates, I'd be, say, I'd be saying, heck yeah. Hell Notorious, yeah. though, for being civil and crossing party lines that, to solve problems, the, right? The problem, though, is that we have one wild card who is allowed... Others not one. Be, no, no, no. I what disagree. I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. Yeah. We have one wild card who has allowed others to now think it's okay to be uncivil and uh, boorish and loudish. So they they follow that example because now they feel emboldened. Whereas before, they, there might have been a little bit. You know, even uh, what is it? Donald? Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Tip, o, Tip O'Neill. This is. I'm going back to the '80s. Uh, <laughs> you, you, Tip O'Neill and me. Ronald Reagan were political enemies, but they they spoke to each other every day and because yeah. they knew like jim said they knew what was at stake and they knew that they as it turns out they were still doing the same job trying to advocate you, for what they believed in 
And you could and say the same about Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. Absolutely. Like, and, yeah. and, and, and to be fair, you can say that about the congressional leaders still. Right. Where right. they they will sit they still sit down and meet and their staff sit down and meet and some of them get along quite swimmingly in a private sense, um, but you're right that Donald Trump is sort of an exception here, which is you know to some degree what you should expect when you put a political outsider to grab a political outsider and drop him in the middle of Washington, and um, you know he's not he's not it's necessarily accustomed to those sorts of ways of being and doing things. <laughs> well, I do have to say one of my favorite things about Donald Trump is that he'll have these private meetings where everybody's hugging and kissing. I mean, they don't have them anymore, but at the beginning they did. And he would say, he would break decorum, you know, break the silence and say, but in that meeting you told me. Right, right. <laughs> so so mm-hmm. people were like, oh, we can't do this anymore. We just can't go anymore. <laughs> well, let's hope the, uh, our misery is over after uh, in a couple of weeks. Jim, we would, uh, I'd like to have you back on afterwards and kind of, you know, let's do a, a, a post-mortem on yeah. whether, you know, win or lose. Who, uh, we'll it's a fascinating election. It absolutely It is. certainly is. And right. I'd be happy to do that. Excellent. Listen, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormamed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page. And you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.